This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, and welcome to part two of our interview with Dr. George Forgey on the different interpretations over what caused Southern secession and the American Civil War. I'm Henry Winsack, graduate student of history here at UT and assistant editor at Not Even Past. In our last episode, we were discussing slavery's role in Southern secession. This is a common view among historians, yet remains very controversial. Dr. Forgey, can you explain why? Uh, First of all, slavery had existed in what is now the United States for about 200 years before the South seceded. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if you think about it, the hundreds of years now that we have in American history, freedom for African-Americans occupies a minority of that time, only 150 years. So African-Americans in this country have been slaves much longer than they've been free. My point is that over uh, hundreds of years, slavery had worked its way into the fabric of American life, the American economy, American culture, American life generally. So the question would be, all right, why now? The Union was formed in 1787 uh, under the Constitution. Was slavery there? And indeed, the Constitution protects slavery, not by using the name, but by euphemisms. It clearly protects slavery. Hmm. It didn't prevent the Union from being created, so why should it now lead to the Union uh, falling apart? The argument goes on. Northerners, white Northerners, people will say, were just as racist as white Southerners, and they oppressed blacks too, not at owning them, but in segregating them. Mm-hmm. So the argument goes, there's just not a great division among the American people on, on the issue of race. And then when Abraham Lincoln became president, despite his willingness to say in public that slavery was wrong and must someday die... Abraham Lincoln, on the day he was inaugurated, and this is uh, a fact that I, I find is just not very well known, he alluded in his inaugural address to a constitutional amendment that had just been passed by Congress in the days leading up to Lincoln's inauguration. Mm-hmm. And that constitutional amendment, by its own terms, protected slavery forever in the states that wanted to have it from federal interference. Lincoln was willing to write that into the Constitution explicitly. And furthermore, that amendment, by its terms, was unamendable. And just imagine if that mm. had gotten into the Constitution. But so you can see, if um, you list out all of these things, and then, and by the way, you add in that slavery in the South was confined, ownership of slaves was confined to a rather narrow elite. Only one-third of Southern white families owned slaves, and only about 12% of Southern white families owned 20 slaves or more, uh, putting them in the the planter class. Most white Southerners didn't own slaves. It doesn't stand to reason that they would go to war to fight for something that didn't concern them or didn't involve them. So when you put all these things together, you could see why people can be dubious about slavery as an explanation of secession. Now, you ask about why this uh, has a certain amount of tension built into this discussion and what's at stake here. I think people in the southern part of the United States, people whose ancestors were Confederates, have a stake in defending what their ancestors did. They have a certain pride in what their ancestors did, and they want to think that what their ancestors did 
was based on a loftier cause than the ownership of other human beings. And if I were one of those people, I would probably be inclined to make the same argument, to try to explain away the role of slavery in bringing about disunion. And I would reach for one of these other explanations. But as we're saying here, we reach for those other explanations and we find uh, flaws in them as well. Earlier, you, you alluded to one explanation that's called the two divergent societies interpretation. Could you get into that a little bit and how that explains the cause of disunion? Yeah, just to go back for a second, the argument is that not just in terms of owning slaves or not owning slaves or broader economic issues or different understanding of the Constitution, these are symptoms of a much larger phenomenon, which says that over time, Northern civilization and Southern civilization, Northern society and Southern society had diverged. And a lot of this has to do with natural factors, the geography, the topography, the growing seasons, the rainfall amounts, giving rise to different kind of economies, and with different kinds of economies, different personalities and different characters, a different culture. Not that they need be hostile to one another, but they, they are different. And it's not unnatural then for them ultimately to go their separate ways. Now, you can imagine how people could think of Southerners and Northerners, white Northerners and white Southerners being different. Everybody's read Gone with the Wind or seen the movie Gone with the Wind. It's impossible Mm -hmm. to imagine that taking place in Massachusetts. And it's impossible to see the Lowell uh, textile mills operating in uh, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. It, it makes sense to us. We can think of the Yankee clerk sitting at his desk with his visor, scrolling numbers on a pad, and you can think of the ebullient South Carolina or Georgia planter out riding around, living outdoors, being hospitable, being gregarious, uh, different kinds of personality types. But these are stereotypes. But stereotypes usually have a life and an energy that keeps them alive because there's some truth connected to them. Here's the problems with the two societies explanation. The American population was overwhelmingly English-speaking, much more so than it is in 2013. Homogeneous uh, language. Uh, The American population in 1860 was overwhelmingly Protestant, much more so than it is now, Mm -hmm. and specifically evangelical Protestant in, in both sections. The Despite what we've been talking about in economic differences, and this is a striking fact, two-thirds of white adult males in the North and two-thirds of white adult males in the South were farmers of corn and products like that on family farms without slaves and without hired hands. Mm. How different is a farmer of corn in Illinois from a farmer of corn in Arkansas or in Alabama? Uh, same language, same religion, same occupation for the most part, same beliefs in principles such as the principle of uh, the right to own property, the right to get ahead in the world, the same belief in the principles that founded this nation, government by consent of the governed, a common history, especially the, the history of the American Revolution where Northerners fought in South Carolina and George Washington began his career as the commander of the Continental Army in Massachusetts, it just seems very strange to say that these are two separate peoples. Mm. And then finally in this connection, once you've explained a difference, even if you can accept that these sections were different, you haven't explained why they want to go. Think of uh, relationships in our society that are different. Men and women 
I think you could argue that they're different, but nevertheless, they seem to manage to hold their relationships together as often as not. Mm. So once you've identified a difference, if you can, you haven't explained antagonism. And by the way, once you've explained antagonism, you haven't explained killing. I've asked my students, how many of you have ever been in a, in a romantic relationship? And most of the hands will go up. And how many of you have then, at one point or another, broken up in that relationship? And most of the hands will go up. So I'm analogizing here the South leaving the Union. Mm-hmm. And then I say, and how many of you have then murdered the person who was in the relationship with you? And no hand, no hand goes up. In other words, ending the relationship... Well, that's good. <laughs> ending, ending the relationship doesn't explain... Uh, the violence that ensues, to go back to to where we came in. So um, that's one reason why the two societies explanation has had its vogue, it's had its backers, but it doesn't get the traction that puts it at the top of the heap here in terms of competing explanations. Finally, one last explanation that has been forwarded in a very provocative phrase is the blundering generation. Uh, Could you talk about that? Uh, Yes. This explanation of secession, that there were no broad underlying conditions and circumstances or great historical forces that were washing over the American people that explained secession, it was the short-term, short-sighted, self-interested decisions of, of a generation of blunderers that led us over the edge. And this school of thought flourished especially after the American people came back from the First World War and asked themselves, what was that all about? Hmm. Uh, This terrible, terrible struggle. And people had a hard time explaining what at the end it was all about. And so historians who always take their cue, even if not fully consciously from the lives they're living, as they look to the past, began to think, could the same thing be said about the Civil War? Hmm. And sure enough, according to some, it could. And the the argument goes like this. First of all, it ticks off, as we have done, the problems with the extant interpretations, that they're not satisfactory. And it says, for example, that slavery was a dying institution, and it's hard to imagine that people would fight over the, the fate of that, that the economic differences weren't crucial and so forth. The backers of this position clear the field, or think they have, of other interpretations and say you have to look at the decisions that individuals made. It begins with a point that Jefferson Davis decided to fire on Fort Sumter in April 1861. The hand that pulls the trigger could decide not to pull the trigger. Abraham Lincoln had many chances to avoid what happened. The first one, of course, is that he could have stayed out of politics and not challenge Stephen Douglas in 1858. But uh, he could have compromised with the South over slavery in the territories, which this school of thought, by the way, the, the question of slavery in the territories is the focal question of the future of slavery. But this school of thought finds this rather bizarre that people would fight so hard and take such drastic steps to see whether slavery would go into what is now Utah or Nevada or Montana, Mm. where slavery, according to them, had no future anyway. And what they're driving at here is that somehow or other, the ambitious politicians played on the emotions of the people over slavery. 
and elevated those emotions beyond any rational um, basis and led these hyper-emotionalized people into this war that nobody wanted and that was needless. And they did it in part because they didn't think that that's what would happen after they did what they did. They assumed that there'd be another compromise and that we'd go on as we had before. The strength of this view is that, of course, whatever else is at work in history, finally you come down to individuals on a given day deciding they're going to do things. And it makes sense if you just think about what you've done today or what you did yesterday, you could have decided to go down a different street Mm. or open a different door. I can remember during the height of the Cold War in the 1950s and 60s, there are many people who thought ultimately we're going to get into a terrible, terrible war, probably a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. To some people, it seemed inevitable. But day by day, because people did or didn't do things, it got postponed, it got postponed, it got postponed until finally postponement becomes it's not going to happen at all. And that's what this school of thought thinks was possible if people had just been more sensible. Now, it has a certain plausibility in that respect. The problem with it is that It's a judgment on history as well as an explanation of it. That is to say, it's looking back on the 19th century uh, involvement and discussion about slavery, and it's essentially saying, you fools, you fools, you were concerned about something that you shouldn't have been concerned about because it was going to take care of itself. It was going to die. And uh, we, in our wisdom in the 20th century, would, would never have allowed ourselves to be carried away by that. Ultimately, that kind of judgment from the future, looking back with hindsight, is probably ultimately not going to win the approval of of a field of historians and others who are trying to come to an explanation about these matters. So you've outlined some of the main explanations for disunion. I was wondering if you could really assess the state of the field as it stands today. One of the reasons this subject fascinates me is that you have this tremendous event that occurred in our history perhaps the most tremendous, and naturally you want to explain it. And there are several plausible explanations or interpretations, and yet each one of these has some something about it that leads people to say, no, no, that's not it. And the what comes out of that is that this is an endless discussion. I would be much less interested in this subject if it was cut and dried and all settled. Uh, It's not. The discussion goes on. And in that connection, and I say this to my students, I think the greatest book, the best book, the most persuasive book on the reasons for secession, the origins of secession and civil war, is yet to be written. Hmm. And I want to hold out to them the prospect that maybe one of them will write it. Well, Professor George Forgey, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me on. And this has been another episode of 15-Minute History, and we'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15minutehistory. That's the numerals 15minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.